Rob, uh, one of our, fa- I think it's safe to say our, one of our favorite movies of my lifetime, really, has been Gladiator. I, I mean, I love that movie. I've personally never spoken to somebody that didn't at least like Gladiator. Most people I know love Gladiator. I know you love Gladiator. Um, you know, people should know when they're conquered. Would you, Quintus? Would I? Would I? Ah, such a great line. You knew Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> I love the way he said there's such power and sarcasm in his voice when he <laughs> so says good. that. Oh, my God. That line is so good. Anyway, so... You remember, Rob, a little while ago, there was a, there were rumors and whispers going around and some confirmations that they were playing around with the idea of a Gladiator 2. And it was going to have a lot to do with, um, you know, Maximus in the afterlife and and a lot of, there was even a script wit- written, wasn't there? Wasn't yeah, there by a, Nick, Nick Cave. That's right. A musician, Nick Cave, who'd made a Western. So that was out there. And then that pretty much went away. And then nobody talked about that for a while. Well, guess what? It's back because Ridley Scott is saying now Ridley Scott, of course, you know, he's got that new film coming out. um, The last duel with Adam driver, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, that's coming out here pretty soon. And it looks awesome. After that, he's doing a Napoleon movie, but then at the age of 83, Ridley Scott is saying after the Napoleon movie is done, He's doing Gladiator 2. He said, yeah, no, I'm, I'm doing it. He says, as a matter of fact, I'm having the script written right now. I, down here in this one paragraph, we're over here at the uh, great website Empire. They're right, while Kitbag, that's the Napoleon movie, will be no small undertaking. Scott already has Maximus on his mind, too. Finally, long gestating plans for a sequel to his 2000 masterpiece seem to be gaining traction. I'm already having it written. Uh, he says, I'm already having Gladiator written now, he says. So when I've done Napoleon, Gladiator will be ready to go. That's quite a roster. Uh, writers consider us entertained. So Ridley Scott, Rob, he's saying, he's not, he's saying, like, he's putting this definitively. He's not saying, oh, yeah, I'm still thinking about it. It's, you know, once I get all the press and all my press obligations for uh, The Last Duel out of the way, I'm moving on to Kit Bag. That's, that's his Napoleon movie. And once Napoleon's done, my script for Gladiator, which I am having written, so it's obviously a new script. It's not going to be the same script that they had before, so I guess they came up with a new story. And he says, and once that Napoleon movie's done, we're doing Gladiator 2. Now, I am of torn mind on this, Rob, because I I have no idea what they're doing with this Gladiator. None. Me neither. But I do know this. Gladiator is Russell Crowe. You could have titled the movie... Maximus. The movie is called Gladiator, but that is a direct reference to Maximus. The movie is him. That's that's the movie. And spoiler alert, 20 years late, he died. <laughs> so there would have to be some sort of supernatural element to it. I What I don't want to see, Rob, to be honest, but it's Ridley Scott. I'll give it the benefit of the doubt even if they do this. But what I hope they're not doing is just taking another guy who became a gladiator in the Roman arenas and telling a, a totally different movie with a totally different character and a totally different story. To me, gladiator is the story of Maximus. And while it seems silly to bring Maximus back from the dead, I would rather that than try to make gladiator about something else. So Rob, listen, I never thought this was going to happen. I never thought they would actually do this, 
And there's still a chance it doesn't get done. I mean, Ridley Scott may want to do it and he may have it in development and he's having a script written, but that doesn't mean a studio is saying, okay, here's $150 million, go make it, right? So it may still not happen, but it Ridley Scott seems pretty sure that he's doing it. Rob, let me ask you, what do you think of Ridley Scott saying he's doing another Gladiator movie? What do you think this new script could be about and, and what could possibly make you interested in it? What do you think? Well, as you know, I have a great third-party Maximus yes, figure, 12-inch figure right here. And the same company just put up a Commodus for pre-order. Oh, Commodus. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix. So it's still – and, of course, we all know that Maximus Decimus Meridius was commander of the armies of the North, general of the Felix Legions, and loyal servant to the true emperor, <laughs> Marcus Aurelius. So, I, you know, first of all, uh, like you said, Gladiator is Russell Crowe. And Russell Crowe's not exactly in gladiator shape these days. <laughs> and I, I like you, I mean, you could maybe bring back Jaiman Hansu's character or something, but nobody really wants that. I mean, I it won Best Picture, John. And I, I to me, I, I mean, I like the idea, like Nick Cave said, that, that Maximus in the afterlife was granted second life by the gods or something. I'm like, I'd watch that. But I don't <laughs> know what it could possibly be. And it does worry me. I, I hope I remember being really excited. Money Never Sleeps, the Wall Street sequel yeah. where Gordon Gecko comes out of prison like 20 years later and Shia LaBeouf is going to marry. I his still daughter. love that shot as he's coming out of prison and they give him his phone back. And it's one of those giant <laughs> yeah. phones. I, I was so disappointed by that movie. I thought, wow, it's ripe for the pickings now because of after the subprime mortgage crisis and all that. And I just I just remember seeing it. It was beautifully made, but I felt really let down. And I just, do we need a look on one hand, the fanboy in me says, yes, I want to see a gladiator sequel, but the pragmatist in me, I'm like, eh, do we need that? Should, should it be made John? It's the old Jeff Goldblum thing. Just because you could, doesn't mean that you should the Ian yeah. Malcolm, the, the Ian Malcolm paradigm. Yeah. I, yeah I, it's like, do we do it? I look, Ridley Scott's got, dude, he's got a movie. He's got Last Duel coming out in October and House of Gucci coming out in November. Yeah. The guy is unstoppable. This is he's his got year. two movies coming out in the same month or the same 30 days or whatever. Um, and he just shows no sign of, of, of quitting. But I don't know if, I don't know if he should make this movie. You know, the one thing that I will, will give it, I mean, besides the fact that I have to hear that it is Russell Crowe coming back, that Russell Crowe is going on, you know, modified genetically modified horse steroids that you know whatever it is russell crowe's got to do to get back into russell crowe shape mm -hmm. the fact is while ridley scott went through a dry decade i'm i'm i'll go so far as to call it a very dry decade where a lot of us i admit myself included was wondering is ridley scott washed up i mean is he done but then he came out with the martian which God, that is one of my favorite movies the last number. Whenever it's Me, on TV, I'll stop. Dude, The Martian is so good. I stop clicking as soon as that thing comes on. Uh, we've got, you know, like you said, we've got these two fantastic looking films coming out in House of Gucci and The Last Duel, which both look phenomenal. The sounds of the Napoleon Project, from what I've read, sounds really good, too. I mean, if he's back in stride, 
I mean, I will give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, look, it's not like we're finding out Rick Flam is directing a Gladiator 2. It's Ridley Scott. And Ridley Scott seems to have found his stride lately again. So I'll give it the benefit of the doubt for now. I'll give it the benefit of the doubt until we hear Russell Crowe's not in it. If I hear Russell Crowe's not in it, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm probably going to lose most of my interest at that point. But we will have to wait and see. The question is for you guys. What do you think about this? Russell Crowe is saying after his Napoleon project, he's doing Gladiator 2. He's having a new script written right now. Are you interested in Gladiator 2? Are you excited for it? Whatever you guys are thinking, jump down into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. By the way, our friend Jake Garcia sends in a super chat badge in the live chat, as does Film Chris. Uh, both guys send in super chat badges in the live chat. Thank you guys. Appreciate that very much. Okay. With that down, let's move on to another off the top, and that is this. Rob, on top of all the excitement and great stuff that we had in Mandalorian Season 2, maybe nothing generated as much buzz other than maybe the appearance of Rosario Dawson as Ahsoka was the post credit scene of season two Dude. with Boba Fett and Rennick showing back up at Jabba's old palace, finding a Russell Crowe bill for Bib Fortuna sitting on Jabba's throne, wiping him out. And that iconic image of Boba Fett sitting on Jabba's throne and that, and then the announcement coming soon, the book of Boba Fett. Well, we've been talking a lot about it, and now we've got a little bit more info as we now have an actual release date. We knew it was coming in December, but now it is official. The Book of Boba Fett begins streaming on Disney Plus on December 29th. So just before the new year, December 29th is when it starts streaming. And by the way, we get our first poster. We get our first look at him. Let me bring it up here on screen. There we go. We get our first look, of course, that iconic image again of Boba Fett sitting there on his throne, which is awesome. They also put out a bit of a synopsis. Uh, it comes to us. This got emailed to me by Disney this morning that wrote, The Book of Boba Fett, a thrilling Star Wars adventure, finds legendary bounty hunter Boba Fett and mercenary Fennec Shand navigating the galaxy's underworld when they return to the sands of Tatooine to stake their claim on the territory once ruled by Jabba the Hutt and his crime syndicate. A lot of which we already knew. <laughs> we kind of knew that already, but that's the official synopsis they're putting out right now. Listen, man, seeing Morrison come back to play Boba Fett was so great to see. Yeah. I mean, I love seeing him in Aquaman. I did. I love seeing him in Aquaman, but seeing him back there as Boba Fett, that voice and all that kind of stuff. I love the character, the way he was portrayed in Mandalorian and the way that Mandalorian season two ended. I've just been drooling, waiting for this show. I've never been interested in a Boba Fett standalone thing before because I've never wanted to know more about him. The mystery of him is part of what makes him so cool. But in Mandalorian, Rob, it seemed to me like they found a way to give us more Boba Fett and completely still maintain the mystery of him. And I'm like, okay, if they can strike that balance, sign me up. Rob, you had a chance to see the first poster and, uh, of course, the release date, end of December. What do you think about it? Well, uh, you know what? I, what, what that, what that pose, poster says to me is Boba Fett's now the king, the kingpin of the underworld, of the Star Wars universe. I mean, I think that's kind of what I took away from it. It's just badass. And well, you know what I find interesting about this whole, like you said, seeing Tamora Morrison come back playing Boba Fett unmasked, his chrome dome head being just a, you know, just a badass. It's like everything I grew up thinking Boba Fett 
was based on his brief appearance in Empire Strikes Back. He kind of went out like a chump in Jedi, which always bothered me. They've reinstated his coolness. Like he, the Mandalorian, if nothing else, has reinstated Boba Fett as one of the coolest mofos in the universe. And that poster says to me, yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> so I can't wait. And by the way, I really liked the dynamic that eventually evolved in Mandalorian between Fennec Ming-Nawen and, and Boba Fett. And I think that's going to be a really nice pairing for him because if you're going to maintain the mystery Boba Fett, you got to have somebody else do more, most of the squawking. And Fennec is a perfect character for that. So yep. I think that match is going to be great. I, I love this. I love the poster. Question is for you guys. Have you had a chance to see the poster for the Book of Boba Fett? What do you think about the release date? No surprise for us. Some of us were kind of hoping it would be near the beginning of December, but it's coming out at the end of December. What do you guys think? Jump down into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys. With that down... Let's move into our main topics today, shall we? And how do we select our main topics here at the John Campy Show? Well, it's really simple. You see, you guys come up with our main topics. Whenever you come across a big topic issue or story that you guys feel we need to cover as a main topic here on the show, just go anytime 24-7 over to www.thejohncampiashow.com slash contact. Once you guys get there, you're going to see a form. Fill it out with your topic or question. It's totally free. Hit submit, and then maybe, just maybe, you might see your submission featured as a main topic here on the John Campia show. With that down, let's get into main topic number one. And our first main topic today gets submitted to us by Jan Ice, who writes, Hi, John. I remember when the first teaser for Encanto came out that you didn't really like it all that much. I, I didn't actually. No, I didn't. Um, if I remember right, did you have a chance to see the new trailer that just came out? I loved it. I thought it was magical, and I already love the main character and the kind of humor it seems to have. At least I have a friend. Nope, you flew away immediately. That was a really funny part of the trailer. Ha! What did you think of it? All right, thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And, of course, the, the newest animated film coming out from Disney Animation, uh, Encanto. We've known about this for a while. They put out the first teaser for it a little bit ago, and looked interesting but honestly to me i it didn't do much to get me very excited at all i mean it was really more just an announcement trailer well now they've put out a full trailer and they've actually given us now an idea about what the story is and what's going on in it and you know what Color me interested. All right, this comes to us from the folks over at Slash Film who write about it. Uh, the Madrigals are an extraordinary family who live hidden in the mountains of Colombia in a magical house in a vibrant town in a wondrous charm place called Encanto. The magic of Encanto has blessed every child in the family with a unique gift from super strength to the power to heal. Every child except one, Maribel. But... When she discovers that the magic surrounding the Encanto is in danger, Maribel decides that she, the only member of the Madrigal family, uh, the only ordinary Madrigal, might just be her exceptional family's last hope. And that, of course, comes to us from the folks over at Slash Home and is the synopsis for the film. And Rob, uh, the Jan Ice is right. When the first teaser came out, I thought, eh, 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 eh. But... I'll tell you what, man. I watched this trailer. I know they're very, they're close cousins. I, I could have sworn this was a Pixar film. 
Uh, it's Disney animation, a lot of overlap there, but I thought this film, this trailer, like Jen, I said, was magical. Not to use a pun, but it was magical. I love this character. And she's right, Rob, that last line in it, well, at least I have a friend. Nope, you flew away immediately. I like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, if that's the kind of humor, if that's the kind of charm that this movie's going to have, I think we might be in for a lot of fun. And I thoroughly, unlike the first trailer, I got to say, I thoroughly enjoyed this one. Rob, you had a chance to check out the Encanto trailer. What did you think about it? Well, you know, I thought, again, it it looks wonderful. Like, you know, they talked about in the trailer from the makers of Zootopia, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, it looked, you know, the very idea of, okay, you're the one person in your family that doesn't have magical gifts. And yet when when those people's powers, which were given to them by this magical house, are taken away, you become the special one that's going to save everyone and save the magic. I love that idea. That's, I mean, that's a classic hero's journey set up. And, and again, you know, this just looks like Disney working at the top of its game. And I, I don't know if this is supposed to take place in Spain or it's supposed to take place. Columbia. It says, Oh, it's Columbia. Okay. So it's, I love the idea that there's just something about that whole milieu. We saw a little bit of it with Coco. Um, I, I just the 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 imagery and the colors and and all of that I I, I it's just I was I'm there for it, man it looked it looked really good to me and um I uh I I I will see this definitely see this in the theater yeah me too I agree all right the question is for you guys what did you think about this new trailer for Encanto? I listen, this one got me a lot more excited for the movie than the first one did, to be honest with you. I'm now find myself really looking forward to watching this. How did you guys feel about it? Jump on down into the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys, with that down, let's move into main topic number two. And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by Alan Haas, who writes... Hey, John and Rob, a lot of people have been talking about Squid Games on Netflix, and we've been talking about it around here lately, too. And I saw that you watched it recently, too, so I decided to give it a shot, and I really liked it. I didn't realize just how many people are watching it, though, because I just read that Netflix is saying it is about to become the biggest and most popular show ever in the history of Netflix. Is that right? How can it be bigger than Daredevil or The Crown? All right, thanks a lot for sending that in, Alan Haas. And yeah, listen, Rob, it wasn't, couldn't have been any more than two weeks ago that somebody wrote, maybe even just a week ago, that somebody wrote in and said, hey, John, you've been watching Squid Game. And I'm like, I've never even heard of this. What's Squid Game? I, I don't know what Squid Game is. And here we are one week later talking about this show maybe being the number one show of all time on Netflix. Now, Back up a second. This is a really good show. I've enjoyed a lot. Now, I don't think it's like the greatest thing in the world right now. Like some people are like obsessed with this show, Rob. Some people just think this is like the greatest show out there right now. It looks pretty great. It, it And it is pretty, it's pretty damn good. I binged all nine episodes in three days. I had a really good time with it. I don't think it's like the best thing in the world, but I really enjoyed it. It's really quite solid. And with the people writing into the show and, and talking about the show, uh, here, I knew there's a bunch of people watching it, but then when I opened up Netflix the other day and I saw it at number one on Netflix, I'm like, wow, I didn't know it was that popular. But Rob, when you start talking 
about the all-time biggest shows on Netflix. Like, I would think shows like The Crown, which just won all the Emmys, uh, uh, House of Cards, which really got the original programming of Netflix really going. I think of shows like the Marvel stuff on Netflix, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, uh, you know, uh, Punisher. You think of these things. I was shocked a couple of weeks ago to hear that Bridgerton was now the, the number one all-time biggest show ever on Netflix, bigger than all the other ones. I was I was really surprised to hear that, but hey, there you go. But yeah, you read that right. It's sounding like, according to Netflix, they're anticipating now that Squid Game is going to become the all-time number one show in the history of Netflix. This comes to us from the folks over at IndieWire who write the following. As reported by Variety, Sandros, that's the, the head of, uh, of stuff over there on Netflix, said that high-concept Korean survival drama Squid Game, which premiered September 17th, has a very big chance of becoming the biggest Netflix show ever and currently ranks as the number one show worldwide on the service. We did not see that coming in terms of its global <laughs> popularity, Sandros said. And listen, even when I started watching the show, Rob, I, and, I, and I liked it, and I'm, I'm binging it, I didn't see this coming because Rob, in many ways, it's, it's, we talked about this before. It's basically, it obviously takes a lot of influence from battle Royale. It obviously takes a lot of influence from like a hunger games, which also took a lot of influence from battle Royale and things like that too. But the number one show on Netflix all time, Rob, you've, you've seen like people talking about this. What do you think the appeal is that has made this thing like the number one global phenomenon right now. What is it about this thing? Well, you know, I watched the trailer and obviously it's suitably bonkers. And obviously Netflix has more subscribers than they've ever had before. They've got a worldwide audience. And I think that if people reacted to it the way I reacted to it, and I think they would, it kind of has this weird, irresistible premise that you kind of have to see. And it's so different from what everybody else, like how many times can you binge Bridgerton or the crown or whatever your favorite, like I just finished sex education, which I like, but <laughs> nothing else. Uh, and I haven't <laughs> seen squid game, but it definitely looks new and unusual. So, and, and you know, who doesn't like the hunger games and battle Royale? Well, look, there are two things though, to keep, to keep into consideration though, when hearing it becoming the all time number one show. One of the things you just pointed out, which is Netflix today, I mean, this sounds like a no-brainer, but you got to consider it. Netflix today has more subscribers than it's ever had before. More people have Netflix today than at any other time in history. And tomorrow, more people will have Netflix than at any other time in history. So so number one, the one advantage that Squid Game has is that it does have a much bigger Netflix base to be the biggest show that it's ever had. That's number one. The second thing is this, and Rob, we've had to talk about this a couple of times. A little while ago, Netflix introduced a very controversial new practice, which they used to define a view one way, but now they define a view very differently. If you turn on Squid Game for two minutes and one second, and then think this is crap after just two minutes and go away from it, they yeah. still count that as a view. They never used to do that. 
They didn't used to do that. It used to be, I can't remember how long the watch time had to be to count as an actual view, but now it's only two minutes. So you can literally hit start, run to the kitchen to grab your drink, come back, see it for five seconds, and but it's been playing for two minutes, and think, oh, this is terrible, and then click away from it. It counts as a view. Now, I'm not trying to take anything away. I'm not trying to take anything away from what an absolutely momentous accomplishment it would be for Squid Game to become the number one all-time show on Netflix, which it looks like it's about to be. I'm just saying that if you're wondering how, if you're wondering how on earth did this happen, well, it, it happened because there's more Netflix viewers than ever, and also they changed their definition of what a view meant, so that played. But again, not taking anything away from it, this would be insane if it breaks this record. When you consider all the stuff that's been on Netflix and how many people watch it, to be the show that is the biggest of all time, especially one that a week and a half ago, Rob, I never even knew existed. I didn't even know this thing existed a week and a half ago. And here we are talking <laughs> about being the platform's number one show of all time. Question is for you guys. What do you think about this? Have you guys been watching Squid Game? If so, what do you think? Are you surprised that this many people around the world are watching it? Whatever you guys think, jump down into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys. With that down, let's now move into main topic number three. And our third main topic today gets submitted to us by Mr. Khan. And Mr. Khan writes, Hey, John and Rob. So, finally, early reviews for No Time to Die are out. Man, I was waiting for years to watch it. It's true. You have been waiting for years to watch it. So, the reviews have been so far positive. And what I make out, it's a dark James Bond this time. Everything aside... What's your box office prediction domestically slash worldwide? All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, Mr. Khan. And yeah, the critics and some people around the world have now been able to see the new James Bond film, No Time to Die. Uh, something a lot of people have been waiting for, people have been excited about. Uh, waiting Again, this movie was supposed to come out, I believe, on my 18th birthday. I can't remember something around there. This movie was supposed <laughs> to come out a long time ago. All right. But it is now played in theaters and people are watching it. And you're right. Generally speaking, the reviews are very positive, but they're not perfect. They're positive, but they're not perfect. Let's go over and take a look. Uh, our friends over at Cinema Blend gathered together some of the more prominent ones. But here's what some people are saying coming out of it. Eric Eisenberg, who is from Cinema Blend, writes, No Time to Die is a solid Bond film. Not on the level of Casino Royale or Skyfall, but also vastly superior to Quantum of Solace and Spectre. The plot is messy, but the action is top-notch. There are some impressive surprises packed in, and it brings a satisfying end to the Daniel Craig era. Mike Riaz writes, No Time to Die is a triumph. A perfect ending for the Daniel Craig era. It allows him and the franchise to go places rarely allowed in Bond. No uh, no notice false. No emotion squandered. The final needle drop broke me into tears. It's the, ne it's the next on Her Majesty's Secret Service. That's high praise. Uh, Stephen Libby writes, What is there to even say? No Time to Die may be the least James Bond, James Bond movie ever, but... It's all the better for it. While Daniel Craig, when Daniel Craig arrived, Casino Royale introduced us to the new Bond perfectly, and this new film says goodbye in equally fitting fashion. Uh, Eric Davis over at Fandango writes, 
So No Time to Die is awesome. Classic Bond, classic villain, classic gadgets, and a story that seems to question how much we still need James Bond to save the day. Terrific writing and stunning direction from Kerry Joy Fukunaga. Uh, loved every second. A perfect finale for Daniel Craig. And then uh, from a friend of ours, uh, Perry Nemiroff wrote, uh, I dug no time to die for the most part. Some beats lost me, lost momentum. But those set pieces are exceptional and beautifully photographed. Daniel Craig is great again, gives us every ounce of himself to the role, and you can feel it. But Anna de Armas was the fave. More of that, please. So, Rob, as I read around a, a bunch of people, and by the way, it should be pointed out right now, there there is now an official Rotten Tomatoes score at the moment with 69 reviews. <laughs> 69. Uh, with 69 reviews, No Time to Die is sitting at 87%. And having looked through what a lot of people are saying, there is a lot of that. Like some people are saying this movie is like absolutely phenomenal. And and then there are a bunch who are saying kind of like what Eric was saying that, hey, you know what? It's it's not, you know, Casino Royale, but it's much better than Quantum of Solace Inspector, which I think a lot of James Bond fans, that's all they really wanted to hear. I think all a lot of James Bond fans really want to hear is just, just tell me it's better than Quantum of Solace and better than Spectre. Um, it doesn't have to be Skyfall. It doesn't have to be Casino Royale, which happens to be my favorite Bond film. But it seems like it's fit right in there. Not perfect. Some people are saying it's got some bumps, but everybody seems to be enjoying it and that it's a, they're pretty much all saying it's a solid goodbye to Daniel Craig's Bond. Rob, I know you talked to some people yesterday who watched it. You've been reading the reactions for it. As somebody who's been very excited about this Bond film, what are your thoughts on all this? Ooh, well, you know, I, I have a long history in my own life with the James Bond franchise all the way back to the 70s when I was a little kid. So the James Bond franchise means a great deal to me. The first Bond movie I saw in the theater was Spy Who Loved Me in 1977. And I'm a huge James Bond fanatic. And I have found the Daniel Craig Bond run to be frustrating in the sense that Bond, he's never had a real mission. To my mind, there's never been a traditional Bond film in the Craig franchise because Casino Royale, which I love, I think it's easily one of the best Bond films, he's beginning as a double O, and he kind of stumbles into, it's basically the origin story of James Bond as a double O agent. And then Quantum of Solace, which I'm an apologist for, continues that story. And then Skyfall is sort of late in his career. So we... We never saw Daniel Craig's James Bond as a workaday double O going on missions to save the world. He was always sort of, we saw the end of a mission in Skyfall, but then he kind of goes AWOL, you know, and stumbles into something. And Spectre again comes back. It's kind of like he's at the end of his career. Now, this movie picks up where he's in retirement. So we never saw Daniel Craig's Bond actually be Bond. And I thought that was kind of odd. And the fact that they, this is all like one long story. And I've talked to people that are old school Bond fans like me who have said one thing that distresses me, which is this movie is Spectre 2. And I won't elaborate why they said that. But on the other hand, you know, people that don't have a long history with the Bond franchise, a lot of our friends or reviewers and things like that who are, I'll just say, younger than me, have really enjoyed it. And and they're not I mean, people Daniel Craig is a lot of 
because he's been the modern body. He's been around for 15 years now. So if you were like 10 years old when you saw Casino Royale, you're going to be 25 now. So that's a long that's a long tenure. I mean, what do you know about Live and Let Die and Mouth of Golden Gun, which was made made the mid early mid seventies? So I'm cautiously optimistic going into this movie. I find I think it's going to be, as everyone said, beautifully made. I think it's going to be very interesting. I can't wait to see it. But there are certain things that I want from a James Bond movie that I don't know if this film is going to deliver, and I'm curious now because. To me, the people that I know that I've that have the same kind of experience with Bond as I do have not been kind to this movie. But on the other hand, I, I read the Guardian review, which is five stars. You know, there's a lot of people that really, really, really love it. So I I am I am cautiously optimistic and I'm very curious about the mixed the mixed reviews that I've read about the, and heard about this movie. Well, like I said, right now it's sitting at 87%. So it'll be interesting to know how that number fluctuates. Obviously, it will fluctuate. As a matter of fact, it just did fluctuate. It has now gone down. There are now five more reviews have added, and it has gone from 86 all the way down, or 87 all the way down to 86. So right now, after about uh, almost uh, three quarters of 100 reviews, 75 reviews in there now, 86%. So a solid score. It sounds exactly like the what Eric said. It sounds like maybe not as good as Casino Royale or Skyfall, but it's at least sounding like it's better than Spectre. Now, what do you think about the uh, the box office? Because I think like this is the most expensive pandemic movie. Uh, they've reported the production budget as being two hundred fifty million, and because of interest payments, I read an article that said it's up to about three hundred fifteen million in terms of production costs and interest payments that they've incurred. That's a that's a big big number. Yeah, this and Spectre made, according to Box Office Mojo, eight hundred and eighty million six hundred eighty one thousand five hundred nineteen dollars, which is still a lot of money. I believe it's the second highest grossing Bond film after Skyfall. So the Bond franchise is still coming off a huge win streak, and I would say, yeah. John, that the closest thing we have now to Bond is Fast Nine which has grossed worldwide 716 million which is a big big number. Yeah. Do you think that No Time to Die can do what Fast 9 did worldwide? No. No, I don't. Um I think it can do well. I think it can do well. Uh but the reality is in this environment and what Fast 9 I mean you remember Fast 9 too, the Fast and Furious franchise has become a habitual billion dollar franchise. Yep. So it making 700 million is a really is a real big reflection on the current environment uh that and how challenging it is to do that so let's say if you're talking about a 30% drop due to the circumstances and you look at say the last one made 800 million where now you're talking maybe 500 600 maybe um and i don't even know it's going to do that I, I, I don't even know that it can do that because, again, Fast 9 came out when we were on a real downside of the pandemic. Like, it came out when we were we were in full-blown pandemic recovery. And then, of course, the Delta variant hit, and it changed the landscape again. So I think, look, I think No Time to Die can do well relative to the current environment, much like, you know, Shang-Chi did not make regular marvel film money but it did extremely well given its current environment and the fact that it didn't get a release in china 
So I think Spectre, sorry, No Time to Die. I got Spectre on the brain now. I think No Time to Die is going to open domestically to around, honestly, the same as Venom. I I think Venom and No Time to Die are both going to open around $60 million. I think worldwide, I think you're going to see Bond coming around the $500 million mark. But I, I mean, you know, the numbers you're highlighting here, Rob, just kind of point to there's a lot of in the business, in business terms, in business terms, we're not talking about personal real lives. We're talking about business terms. No time to die is one of the movies that get hit, that got hit hardest by the pandemic from all the delays and the fact that it was already full blown into its marketing campaign. And then it had to go away with the marketing campaign, it had to wait another year and then remount another marketing campaign and all this kind of stuff. And I think this movie maybe more than any other movie is going to, at the end of the day, feel the ramifications of the pandemic more than anything else. I think at this point, it's just do as limit the damage as much as you can. I, I don't, yeah. I don't think this movie being profitable is even within the realm, realm of possibility. I think now they're in the mode of, Hey, there were circumstances beyond our control. Let's limit the damage as much as we can. And I'm thinking 500 Rob, where do you think, uh, this movie's going to do opening weekend domestically, and where do you see its global, global total coming in at? Well, I think probably domestically it'll be shy of $100 million, um, you know, because the Bond films have not been giant in the States. They've been giant overseas. So I wouldn't be surprised if this opens somewhere between 70 and 80 in our current environment. Um, and I think globally it'll probably be between six and 700 million. Wow. That's, that's more optimistic than me. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Cause Rob, you know, I saw 13 minutes of James Bond, no time to die at CinemaCon, And I was tripping over myself. I loved what I saw so much. Like what I, and granted it was one isolated scene for 13 minutes. Sure. Maybe the rest of it is crap. I mean, I don't know, but I loved what I saw. So I'm very excited for this question is for you guys. The first reactions for James Bond, No Time to Die, are now out. They're all saying it's good, but not the best Bond ever, and maybe not even the best or one of the top two of the Daniel Craig era, era, but not as bad as the worst ones in the Daniel Craig era. How does this adjust to your excitement level? I'm still very, very stoked for this film. How are you guys feeling about it? Jump down into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys. With that down... Let's now move on and start taking your live comments and questions, shall we? Because uh, we got a little bit of time here with Rob still. So let's see if we can get through some of these with Rob still in tow. We're going to start things off here with one from Sam Weiser Gamgee, who writes, Guys, Babylon 5 reboot, which we talked about the other day. Mind blown. Thank God it's Michael uh, J. Michael uh, Straczynski doing it. I have always maintained that the Shadow War arc in Babylon 5 and the Dominion War arc in Star Trek Deep Space Nine are the greatest written episodes in TV sci-fi history. Bring on the Babylon 5 filthy. Well, Rob, yeah, we talked about this the And so, like I I was saying, a lot of people who are hardcore sci-fi fans... Uh, have been really looking forward to this. Some hardcore sci-fi fans are also a little bit nervous about trying to revisit Babylon 5. But I think you came out on the more optimistic side, did you not? You're looking forward to this? Yeah, well, you know, you've got J. Michael Straczynski, who created Babylon 5, coming back and and redoing it. I mean, it's the best of all possible worlds. If somebody's going to do it, having the original creator coming back. And, you know, he made a couple of great tweets about this. He said... 
basically, you know, that that the idea that a river is not the same river it was 25 years ago. Rivers ch- it changes and you're you're different. So what he wants to do is he wants to apply what he's learned in the last 25 years and revisit this material and bring a new spin to it. And I'm 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 curious. I mean, I really want to see it. It's look, I never thought the original Battlestar Galactica was any great shakes, but the reboot I thought was one of the greatest TV shows ever. So maybe Straczynski will be able to do that. All right. Next up, we've got uh, Guillaume LaBelle writes, uh, Hey, John and co. So hyped for this week. Going to see an advanced screening of No Time to Die later today on Tuesday. So this was yesterday they wrote that in. And Venom 2 on Thursday. I'm excited for both, but I've been waiting so damn long for Bond. Hope Craig goes out with the win. Well, the good news here is that it does sound like he goes out on a high note. It sounds like this is a lot of people are saying this was a really good, appropriate goodbye for Daniel Craig as bond. He has been my favorite bond of all time. Uh, as a matter of fact, even though there's been a couple of shaky movies in, in the run, but he's been my favorite bond of all time. So I'm looking forward to seeing his swan song here. All right. Next up, Cam K writes, Let's see a hero in the MCU in the Iron Man suit with Wakandan kinetic energy system equipped with six stones with Doctor Strange's cape with 10 rings around the arms wielding cap shield and Mjolnir and Spider-Man's web shooters on the wrist with some PIM technology intergrained. Yeah, that would be called almost any DC character. Uh, right there. So, <laughs> I'm not, I love DC characters. I, I'm not moshing on DC characters. I love DC characters. Anyway, Dangerous D writes, Hey, John, I want to know your opinion on short range project on short range projectors or also known as short throw projectors. They come in 4K resolution, Wi-Fi, 3,500 to 6,000 lumens. Uh, projectors project 70 to 150 inches uh, screens. ALPD 3.0 technology, movie quality sound. It's your private movie theater. Have you ever owned one or do you recommend buying one? Rob, I'm not going to lie. I have been very tempted to, to invest in one of these short throw projectors. Because yep. For those of you who don't know what these are, you know, normal projectors, you have to sit a certain distance from your wall and it projects onto your wall. These short th- uh, throw projectors, it's like, here's your wall. You literally put the projector right here and it sprays up it's the the image like, like this. And then it can, like he said, there some goes up to 150 inches, which is fantastic. The one problem though, besides price, because you're talking, well, it's it's not as expensive as you might think, but still, you're you're looking at probably spending around three to four thousand dollars for it. The one big problem for me, though, is Rob. No matter how many lumens you pack into these things in the daytime, unless you're in a completely blacked out room, in daytime it really makes it suffer. Yep. And you know, with me the way like I'm working a lot at night and sometimes the free time I do have is during the day if I'm going to have to catch up on things and watch things. And so for me, until somehow, some way they're able to, to overcome that a short throw projector, I don't think is in my wheelhouse, but man, I'm telling you with the technology, the way that it is, it is tempting. Have you seen these things, Rob? Have you been tempted to get one? Oh, I have, you know, and again, my problem is I'm really a stickler when it comes to images when you're watching shows and when you're watching home video and I am tempted because I don't have the room to put in the kind of projection system I would want to put in. So a good short throw projector could be a really interesting alternative, but I, I I guess I'd have to go see one. I've never seen one in an environment 
um, that I could make a decision one way or another. I've seen some video examples of it, but it's always in like a really environment controlled room. You know what I mean? Which my living room is not. My living room is not an environmentally controlled room. So wouldn't quite work for me. All right. Next up. Garden Variety Vagabond writes, John, October is set to be amazing. It certainly is. Uh, Shang-Chi will lose its hold on first place as Venom kicks off on the first. It absolutely will. Uh, The 8th gives us Bond. The 15th has the last duel. I'm so looking forward to that. And the 22nd is Dune. Venom has only one clear week versus two weeks for Dune and Bond each. Yeah, so... What we're going to see, we're going to see a little bit of box office hopscotch over the next couple of weeks because Shang-Chi will be overtaken by Venom this week and then Bond will overtake Venom. The question will be, how good can Venom's legs be? Well, how big will Venom's opening week be? Then how good will its legs be considering Bond is then opening? It's going to be... It's going to be interesting, Rob, because, Rob, this is is going to be fascinating because this is going to be the first time in almost two years. Almost two years. Getting close to it. But at least over a year and a half that we're going to have, like, three significant blockbusters in theaters at the same time. Shang-Chi is still going to be there, which is currently the number one film at the box office. Venom is going to be out and James Bond is going to be out. We haven't had that in like a year and a half. And it's going to be interesting to see how they perform when all three are in. Shang-Chi is nearing the end of its run. So maybe not so much that, but it is going to be interesting to see how Venom and Bond do both being in theaters at the same time, releasing only one week apart. Um, and I don't know how that's going to work out. How do you think they're going to manage against each other? Or is, do you think it's just going to bring out even more people to the theaters? What do you think? Look, I've always believed that when people are excited about movies, um, they go more. And, you know, December, you've got Halloween Kills. You've got One Night in Soho. You've got Dune. You've got I, I think that hopefully it'll be just like uh, people will be gorging themselves on great cinema, John. All right. Next up. We've got Sean Austin's wig who writes, Hey, John, what separates being a good film critic from being a good filmmaker? That's like asking what separates a good garbage man from a good hockey player. I mean, they're two completely different things. Anyway, um, hey, John, what separates being a good critic from being a good filmmaker? Why doesn't knowing uh, what's good or bad about a a movie translate into good filmmaking? (laughs) Why don't more film critics make good movies? Make no mistake, Sean, you're you're talking about the difference between a skateboard and a a food blender. They're two completely different things. Listen, it's one thing, it's like, how do you how do you put this? Film criticism is an observational art. It's an observational art. Right? Like knowing how and, and I'll tell you this, Rob, the number one to me, the number one job of the film critic is not knowing everything about movies. Although a lot of film critics are some of the greatest film scholars in the world, sure. But the real job of a film critic is the ability to analyze and then communicate their own interpretation of the art that they witnessed. Like, but that's why I say my favorite film critic of all time, which was Roger Ebert. I half the time I didn't agree with anything he said, but he was my favorite film critic because he was so gifted and talented about communicating and expressing his impressions and his experiences with the movie. He had a great gift for communicating that. And then I can either agree or disagree, but I always valued and got something out of 
him sharing his perspective and experience with it, right? The art of, it's like asking, well, why can't Mario Andretti, for those of you who don't know, like one of the greatest race car drivers of all time, why can't he build a car? Well, driving the car and building the car are two different things. And certainly you've seen a lot of like film critics get involved in filmmaking for sure, because they have a passion for the art, but it is two incredibly different skill sets. Being able to look at something and analyze it is very different from the ability to take and create that thing. They're very, very different skill sets. So yeah, totally night and day. Rob, how would you address that question? Well, I think that's a really, it's a really interesting question. And I think you did a good job of addressing it. Here's the thing. Watching a finished movie has nothing to do with making a movie. Nothing. And the thing is, obviously, when you're making a movie, you're trying to get to that finished product. But I always ask people, how would you, given an opportunity, how would you shoot a conversation between two people sitting at a cafe? How would you do that? Yeah. How many, how many uh, pieces of coverage would you need? Where would you put the camera? You know, a, a critic will tell you if that was an interesting conversation. Is what they said really interesting? Were you engaged by this? But if you asked a critic to go back and describe how many shots were there? How many, was there a master shot? Were there close-ups? Were there medium shots? Did the camera move? They probably couldn't tell you. They could tell you if the conversation was good, though. They could tell you if the performances were great. But they couldn't tell you how it was made. And I think that's the difference, that the, 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 the experience of watching a film is vastly different than the experience of making a film. You know what a good example of that, Rob, is? is um, uh, look at Olympic gymnast judges, right? right? A lot of them have spent a lifetime knowing exactly what to look for, what elements had good to have example. been executed. But guess what? They can't go out there and do a double black backflip themselves. Their expertise is knowing how to watch it being done and then analyze what was done right and what wasn't done right. Yeah. But they can't go out and do what the gymnast does. So, That's a really good example. Yeah, so uh, example. Uh, hopefully that uh, that helps that out. That's why, you know, um, I think there is such a distinction between the two, and there should be a distinction between the two. So anyway, there's that. But it's a great question, Sean. Great question. All right, we got time for one more while Rob's still here. This comes to us from Jack Lumbers, who writes, in regard to Ric Flair and Tommy Dreamer being canceled, uh, you know what? This is a wrestling thing. It has nothing to do with Rob. So, Rob, <laughs> I know you've got, uh, you've got meetings you got to get to, so we'll let you go right now. But in the meantime, where can people follow you and your goodness online? Um, you can find me on Instagram at Robert Meyer Burnett. Find me on uh, Twitter at BurnettRM or find me on my own YouTube channel, The Burnett Work. All right, go, dude. Good to have you here. I'll talk to you again later. Have a good one, man. Good show. Good show. Ladies and gentlemen, the wonderful Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. All right. Now let's get back over to Jack here. Uh, and Jack was writing one of three. In regards to Ric Flair and Tommy Dreamer being canceled, uh, which I had never even heard about and I don't care about, to be honest with you. Jack, I'm not going to lie to you, Jack. I don't care about this. I don't care about this at all. I know nothing about it. Anyway, in regards to Ric Flair and Tommy Dreamer being canceled, uh, if, just you know, Jack is bringing this up because somebody asked the other day, about, and it might have been Jack, I can't remember, about what do you think about the Tommy Dreamer and cancel and all that kind of stuff. And I said, I don't know anything about the situation. I've never even heard of the situation, so I don't care. But anyway, so that's what Jack is referencing here. 
In regards to Ric Flair and Tommy Dreamer being canceled, uh, this is due to the release of the Plane Ride from Hell episode on Vice's Dark Side of the Ring, which I haven't seen. Uh, at least not this episode. I recommend watching it for yourself. No interest. Uh, the whole episode is free on Vice's YouTube channel. In the documentary episode, the flight attendant on the trip horrifically described how Flair allegedly cornered her in the back of the plane, exposed himself, told her to touch it, which was pretty scummy to do, uh, and stay there for a while until Gold Dust got him to stop. Goldust is my wife's favorite all-time wrestler, by the way. Uh, Flair, on his part, has denied this incident most recently on Renee Paquette's podcast. As for Tommy Dreamer in the episode, uh, put it to put it nicely, he gave a very classless response to the flight attendant uh, when he tried to defend Flair. Again, I, I mean that has, it has nothing to do with me. That sounds pretty awful. I mean that sounds awful. I mean if that happens, that's terrible. That shouldn't happen. And if that happened. Flair should be Flair should be embarrassed for himself and and maybe legally punished. But again, that's uh, I don't know anything about it. I didn't watch the episode, so I don't really know anything more about it. But thanks for giving me some context on that, Jack. All right. Next up, Scott Brown writes. I'm recommending Primal on HBO Max. It won an Emmy for Best Animated Series. I've watched a bit of this. My wife watched the whole thing. Uh, it was created by the person who did Samurai Jack. It's about a caveman and a T-Rex who befriend a tragedy, who befriend in tragedy and lean on each other to survive. It has one of the best uh, pilots ever. Yeah, I watched a bit of it. My wife Anne really enjoyed it. The ones I particularly got caught up in the ones where like they killed a woolly mammoth and then all the mammoths came looking for him. So yeah. And then I watched a little bit more of it too. Looked really good. It's not something that really caught me. I thought it was very well made, but it didn't really catch me or made me feel, you know, inspired to sit down and watch the whole thing. But my wife did like, Anne really, really enjoyed that one. So uh, for those of you who are watching, you might want to take up Scott on his recommendation and check out primal. It may very well be for you very much. All right. Next up garden variety vagabond rights, John, Talking crossovers, I would not call a spinoff a crossover. Well, I don't call a spinoff a crossover either. Uh, better examples would be the new Hawaii Five-0 with Magnum P.I. and NCIS LA on, on CBS. But NCIS LA or New Orleans with the DC team would not be as they are spinoffs. Well, I mean, I don't count spinoffs as crossover either. If you're talking about, we were the other day we were talking about uh, different strokes and uh, what's it called and facts of life. I believe there was an episode where there was, a, I mean, I might be mistaken about it, but I thought there was an episode. Again, I was really young, so I don't remember, but I thought there was an episode where it was crossed over. Like I, I understand the difference between a spinoff and a crossover, um, but I believe there was actually a crossover episode. But again, I was young. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there wasn't an actually crossover episode, but I thought there was. All right, next up. Ryan Lohner writes, after seeing more clips of Dear Evan Hansen, I'd say the problem isn't so much Platt's age itself, but they try so hard to make him look younger that it comes off as horribly unnatural. I swear you can see the makeup stuck in his eyebrows. Listen, Ryan, you're not the only person to write that in. I've had other people write in to say that was the most distracting thing to them. Not that Platt looked obviously older, but that the makeup on him in an attempt to make him look younger just made it look even worse. Now, I can't speak to that myself, but you, Ryan, are not the only person uh, to write in to mention that. All right, next up, Dangerous D writes, hey, John, I saw, I guess I can take the headphones off now. Uh, hey, John, uh, I saw F9 today and I liked it. I know you like this movie 
Oh, no, I didn't like this movie. I didn't like F9 at all. <laughs> uh, I know you like this movie. I do not. Uh, the action is exaggerated, but I likened F9 to the Naked Gun movie. Ooh, that's a bad thing. Uh, some scenes are over the top, but it's to service the punchline. F9 is a parody of action films like Naked Gun's comedic parody. See, that's a problem, Dangerous D, because the Fast and the Furious franchise is not meant to be a parody. And the very fact... Now that we're sitting here having a conversation comparing Fast 9 to a Naked Gun movie is a very, very bad thing for Fast 9. That's the thing, because, like, and the reason I'm a big Fast and Furious fan is because while they have pushed the limits of being ridiculous, sure, they have never tried to be a parody. They've always tried to keep one baby toe one baby toe in the realm of possibility. As ridiculous as jumping from one building to the next is, you know, I've seen some science videos, well, that could theoretically happen if this, 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 and all, very, very unlikely, but possible. So like F9, the Fast and Furious franchise has always tried to maintain a monochrome of believability, right? However slim, F9 threw all of it out the window. Like, it, then it just went full-blown ridiculous. Full-blown ridiculous. To the point now, Dangerous D, that we're sitting here having a conversation comparing it to a spoof movie like uh, Naked Gun. The very fact that you're drawing a comparison between Fast 9 and Naked Gun kind of proves the point. That it's like F9 went too far. It went way too far. Never go full ridiculous. Never go full ridiculous. Unless you're trying to be a spoof movie. Unless you're trying to be Spaceballs. Unless you're trying to be, I don't know, uh, some other spoof movie. Hot Shots and Hot Shots Part 2. If that's what you want, if that's what Fast and the Furious is now, fine. But... I think you just kind of illustrated really perfectly uh, their dangerous D why I think the movie failed. Uh, and, and I say this as a fast and the furious franchise fan. I say it as a fan. That's why I thought nine, nine failed me personally, but eh, it is what it is. It's all subjective. Thanks for your thoughts. Dangerous. Uh, dangerous also writes, John, I'd like to expand my idea about fast nine uh, is in a way similar to the naked gun. Remember a scene in naked gun where police siren on the streets, then a woman shower, then roller coaster, then a living room, except you don't question. It's funny. Just like F nine have fun. But again, dangerous D you're proving my point again. Fast 9 is no longer a legitimate action-adventure series. It's a scary movie, Hot Shots Part 2, Naked Gun spoof movie. And that takes all the enjoyment out of it for me. So anyway, that's just my take on it at any rate. Just my, just my own personal opinion. Just my own personal opinion. All right, Pat Flagg writes, are you concerned with new spinoff of The Boys? Not at all. I just read Eric Kripke, handpicked showrunner Craig Rosenberg, replaced with an Amazon-approved uh, Michelle Fazekas and Tara Butters due to creative differences. Is Amazon interfering too much? No, it's their show. If this is Amazon's show, it's theirs. And by the way, Kripke has come out and fully endorsed them. Like Kripke came out and say, we are so lucky to have these two. And these are the showrunners from Agent Carter, which I thought was really great. No, networks pick their showrunners. It oh, they always do. Networks pick their showrunners. That's it. That is not the studio interfering. That's the studio doing its job. 
That's the studio doing its job. So no, I'm not worried about this at all. When you look at what Amazon has allowed the boys to do, remember there was only one scene that the boys ever told, that Amazon ever told the production team of the boys that they had to take out. And that was the scene of Homelander jacking off over the whole city, soup goop. And then they did put that scene back in, in in season two, right? So they have been tremendous partners on that. And listen, when you're, you own the show and it's your show, you giving notes on what you want is not interfering. That's you being in charge of your show. It's Amazon show. It's nobody else's. And again, Kripke seemed to be right on board with it too. So I think, I think it's going to be perfectly fine. I think it's going to be perfectly fine. All right, next up. Alan writes, hey, John, would you rather have your breakdancing videos, Star Wars fan film released, eat ketchup on eggs for a week, or watch your Maple Leafs blow a three to one lead in conference finals each year for the next six years straight? Uh, hashtag release the campia cut. Uh, now, I think, listen, I'm so used to the Toronto Maple Leafs sucking. They've sucked my whole life. There have been brief moments when they've been pretty good, but they... The Toronto Maple Leafs have not been to the Stanley Cup Finals. Forget winning the Stanley Cup. The Toronto Maple Leafs have not been to the Stanley Cup Finals in my entire lifetime. The entire time that I've been alive on this earth, they've never even been to the Finals, let alone won. So I'm totally used to them sucking. So that one's easy for me. All right, Daniel Skinner writes, Hello, John C., over the past year, I have got to know a fellow YouTuber named Sean Chandler. I'm familiar with Sean. Uh, we, we follow each other on social media stuff uh, and become friends. He recently put out his ranking of all 45 theatrically released DC movies last week. And I was wondering if you could talk about the ones that are not based on a franchise in eight, in four through eight sentences. Uh, Swamp Thing, one and two. Well, I'm not going to sit here and talk about eight movies. <laughs> That's way too long. Anyway, um, uh, Swamp Thing, one and two. Not the biggest fan of them, to be honest. The Kitchen, I hated The Kitchen. Steel uh, with Shaquille. I, I mean, I was really looking forward to The Kitchen. It sucks. Steel with Shaq, obviously awful. Road to Perdition, fantastic. Uh, v for Vendetta, very good. Constantine, I'm actually not a fan of Constantine. Not, not the movie version. Um, the Losers, I thought is a vastly underrated film with uh, Chris Evans and... Um, uh, uh, Zoe. Um, oh, why am I forgetting? At any rate, uh, Red One and Two. I really liked Red One. Hated Red Two. Jonah Hex, obviously terrible. Watchmen director's cut. Not a huge fan of it. Uh, Green Hornet. I liked it more than I thought I would. And the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I actually worked on the League League of Extraordinary Gentlemen a little bit. Not a very good movie at all. And Daniel Skinner writes, "Thank you." Well, thank you, man. I appreciate that. All right, next up. Nosferatu writes, personally, I do not believe Marvel is going to use the multiverse to explain Spider-Man's absence from the MCU. It just seems unnecessary since simply removing him from the franchise doesn't really create any continuity errors at all. Just my opinion. Uh, it does from a fan's perspective. Like, look, Spider-Man, if, and this is still a big if, if Spider-Man is not going to be in the MCU anymore, there has to be a reason he's not in the MCU anymore, whether it's because he died or he just loses his powers and goes away or he goes to another reality. From the fan perspective, there has to be an explanation. Whatever it is, if he's not there anymore, you got to explain why he's not there anymore. And so I think the explanation of 
him being taken. Now, I told you guys a couple of weeks ago, I, I, am to, I am starting to believe, and I'm not buying into this completely. Don't go say, well, Campia says this is what's going to happen. No, no, I'm just saying, I'm starting to kind of buy into this theory a little bit that Spider-Man No Way Home is setting up, ultimately, it's going to be the setup for the departure of Spider-Man out of the MCU. And he will be going over to the Sony universe. And Spider-Man moving forward will be in the Sony universe and out of the MCU. I don't know that for a fact. That's just me guessing. But, you know, it is the guess that I have. But you got to explain if he's suddenly not there. You got to at least explain why he's not there, whether he's dead or whatever. Just got to say why he's not there. That's all. Uh, by the way, our friend Willie A uh, sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, Willie. Appreciate that, man, very much, dude. All right. Next up. We've got uh, Mr. Burns writes. So you don't think the original Halloween holds up, but what are your thoughts on Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th? Uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, absolutely. I, I think that has never changed. That that movie feels the same today as it did the day it came out, as far as I'm concerned. Friday the 13th is interesting, because I'll be honest with you. When I think of Friday the 13th, I don't think of the first movie. I always think of Friday the 13th Part 2. You know, after he truly becomes Jason. So yeah, I, so it's kind of weird that way. But yeah, I do believe these films hold up. I mean, maybe not with the same impact they had when they first came out, but I believe they hold up. That's just me. All right, uh, Gabe Baker writes, one of two. Hey, John, back in December of 2019, my brother Julian and I were at your 100 million views of a nobody show, uh, and it was one of the greatest experiences we've ever shared together. Oh, thanks, man. I'm glad you were at that. Uh, so we are eternally grateful to you for giving us that gift. Uh, at that show, you made the most brilliant joke where I believe you called me a fucker. Oh, I think I remember that. Yeah, it was his birthday on Sunday, and it'd be an equally awesome gift if you said uh, said a birthday message to Julian where you also called him a fucker. Well, I won't do that again, but because it was funny in context. But listen, happy birthday to Julian. Julian, may you have a marvelous, fantastic birthday and a marvelous, fantastic year filled with victory and triumph in the year ahead. I hope you have a great one, Julian. And I'm glad Gabe, you and Julian came to that. Uh, 100 million view party. Thank you very much for attending that, guys. All right. Uh, next up, we just got a few minutes left here. This one comes to us from Daniel Wrights. Hi, John and Co. Love the show and thank you for always making my day. Well, thank you for that, Daniel. My question is with Shang-Chi being number one at the box office, which movie has the chance to overtake Shang-Chi at the box office? Venom, Let There Be Carnage, No Time to Die, Dune, Eternals, Ghostbusters, Afterlife, Spider-Man, No Way Home, and The Matrix Resurrections. Well, if you're talking about which one will just take the number one spot at the box office? I mean, that's going to be Venom. That that's happens this weekend. It will knock Shang-Chi out of top spot at the box office. And then the following week, uh, James Bond No Time to Die will come out, and it will knock Venom out of the top spot. I mean, Venom hopefully will still make a lot of money on week two, but it'll be knocked out of the top spot. If you're asking which one will take over, because as of right now, Shang-Chi is the number one domestic box office movie of the year. No other movie in the domestic box office has made as much money at the domestic box office as Shang-Chi has. If you're asking which one will take its place as far as that goes, I would probably say Spider-Man No Way Home. I don't think Venom will, will beat the overall domestic number that Shang-Chi has. I hope I'm wrong about that. I don't think 
No Time to Die will beat it. I mean, worldwide it will, but I don't think it will domestically. I hope I'm wrong about that. I don't think Eternals will. I don't think Ghostbusters will. Uh, I, I certainly don't think The Matrix will. I think, honestly, I think everybody's overestimating how much money The Matrix is going to make. I really don't think it's going to be as big as a lot of people think. But who knows? Maybe I'm wrong about that. Uh, but Spider-Man. I think Spider-Man is the movie that will uh, be the one to overtake Shang-Chi's overall domestic. Because Shang-Chi is the only movie that's crossed $200 million domestically. Fast 9 didn't do it. Black Widow didn't do it. Uh, Quiet Place 2 didn't do it. Shang-Chi is the number one domestic film of the year. And I think the one that's going to beat it will be Spider-Man. Uh, maybe it'll be Venom. Maybe it'll be, you know, James Bond. But I think the one we're going to have to wait until it's uh, until it's Spider-Man No Way Home. All right. Uh, next up, an anonymous viewer writes, Hey, John, I was wondering with Disney Plus Day with Disney Plus Day coming up on November 12th, if you think we may get a Doctor Strange 2 trailer then, probably, uh, seeing as it's five months away from its release. Love the show. Keep up the great work. The one thing that I think may prevent them from showing a Doctor Strange 2 trailer is that they may want to keep the focus and attention on Spider-Man No Way Home and Eternals. They may want to keep the attention on those two films. It's not often that you'll see them dropping trailers for movies that are still three movies away. Right? It's not often you'll see them drop trailers for movies that are still three movies away. So there's a decent chance. Let me ask you guys. First of all, let me finish explaining my, my opinion on this. I think there's a decent chance maybe they show one, but the one big argument against it again is that they still have Spider-Man No Way Home coming out and they've got Eternals coming out. And I can't remember the last time we saw uh, Disney and Marvel launch a full marketing campaign with the first trailer while, there were while it was still three movies away. You know what I'm saying? So I am not so sure. So let me do this right now for you guys in the live chat. Let me put up a poll here. Um, uh, Will they uh, show a Doctor Strange 2 trailer at the Disney Plus Day? See, the other thing working against it is that Doctor Strange is not going to Disney Plus. So that's it. So it's got two big things working against it. Number one thing working against it is that it's a movie that's still three films away. Well, they're going to want to keep the attention on the films that are coming out more immediately. And the second thing is... Doctor Strange isn't going to be a Disney Plus film. From what they've said, it's going to be a theatrical exclusive. Now, they may change their minds about that, so that's my thought on that. So I just put up the poll there for you guys watching live. So jump on into the live chat there and register your vote. I'd be curious to know what you think. I mean, I won't be shocked if they do. I won't be shocked, but there are a couple of big things working against it. Over 100 of you guys have already voted. 74% of you are saying no, they will not show a Doctor Strange 2 trailer. Uh, and about now 30, now it's over 125 votes. And 30% of you are saying yes, they will. So there you go. I'm going to lean on the no, they won't side because it's not a Disney Plus thing. And there's two other Dis uh, Marvel films to promote before that one. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, heavens, they just put out the first Spider-Man trailer, so there's that as well. Okay, next up. Uh, Q Fox writes, Hey, John, with No Time to Die coming out soon, I was wondering what your favorite James Bond song is. Uh, by the way, I have tickets to see it this Thursday. I don't know. I honestly don't... Um, uh, I mean, Adele's Skyfall, 
that was pretty damn good. I don't really remember the Duran Duran view to a kill. It's a view to a kill. Um, yeah, I'll be honest with you. I don't really follow the, um, um, I don't really follow the, uh, the songs in bond, but apparently like this one's got a pretty good song in it too. So, uh, I, I'm going to go with this off the top of my head. I'll say the skyfall song just off the top of my head. I'll say the skyfall song. Okay. Next up, we've got an anonymous viewer who writes, and this will be our last one here today, guys. Uh, October opening box office prediction, Venom 73 million. I hope you're right. I, I think it's going to be around 60, but I hope you're right. Many saints, 10 million. That sounds about right, especially considering it's being opening on HBO Max. No Time to Die, 82 million. I hope you're right. Halloween, 55 million. No chance, especially with it being on Peacock. Uh, Last Night in Soho and Last Duel, 33 million. That could be about right. And this might break yours and Rob's hearts, but in my opinion, Dune, 35 million. It's not far off from me. I'm thinking 40. I'm thinking 40. Because, again, it's coming out on HBO at the same time, so they've sabotaged the movie. Sorry, but can't see us getting Dune 2. Oh, we'll probably get Dune 2 because Discovery is going to take over Warner Brothers in 2022, and they will greenlight Dune 2. They're going to fire a bunch of the morons who are currently running Warner Brothers. They're going to fire a lot of the guys in the higher offices, a lot of guys whose job titles start with C, like CEO and CFO and things like that. A lot of these guys are going to get fired. I never like talking about people losing their jobs, but these guys, the people running Warner Brothers have got to go, and they will. They will be amongst the first fired as soon as the new overlords from Discovery take over, and the people at Discovery will greenlight it. They'll greenlight it. I feel pretty confident about that, but that's just me. All right, guys, listen. There are still more questions to come from A. Marcellus, uh, Super Korean, Donda, and others. Do not worry, guys. We will pick right up where we left off, either in the next companion. I think there's going to be a companion video tonight. And then, of course, we'll pick up even more on the John Campus Show tomorrow. But for now, that'll do it for today's installment of the John Campus Show. Thank you so much, guys, for taking some time out today and join us. Big thank you to Robert Meyer Burnett, and thank you to all of you guys for being here. And a special thank you to all you guys who sent in the live comments and questions. Number one, because you gave us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you supported this channel as you did it. And all of us involved with the show, thank you guys so very much for your support. Remember, guys, to do the four main things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and take care of the people around you. Don't forget my initial out-of-the-theater reaction for Venom 2 is up on the YouTube channel right now. You can just go find it on the front page. Guys, my name's John Campia. And until next time, my friends, bye-bye.